Today we conclude our long study in the book of Hebrews. We'll be looking at the last verses, verse 17 down through verse 25. I'd like to invite you to look there and follow along as I read. Hebrews 13, verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us. We're sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation. For I've written you only a short letter. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all God's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. Grace be with you all. When General John Galvin served as the Supreme Allied Commander in Europe and as the Commander-in-Chief of U.S. European Command, which was back in the 80s, he was asked what it was like to be in charge of so many and such a variety of forces. He had all the NATO forces underneath him. He replied, I often feel like the director of a cemetery. I have a lot of people under me, but nobody listens. With that in mind, look again at verse 17 and that first line. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. Now, in that sentence, neither the word obey nor the word submit represent the Greek words that are usually translated that way. Obey your leaders is something like be persuaded by your leaders. Submit is not the same word that we have so often, for example, in Ephesians, where submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, or wives, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. This is a different word, a word that was used in classical Greek of giving up your seat to another person. It carries the idea of yielding to the wishes of another. Now, by choosing the word translated here as obey, It's clear that our author is not requiring a blind obedience to leaders. Rather, he's calling for a willingness to be led by them, an openness to their persuasion. Now, remember back in verse 7, he referred to the kind of leaders the church had had in the past. They were people of integrity. Excuse me. Let me get a little water. In the past, the church had had good leaders, men of integrity, people whose faithfulness was worthy of imitation, and there's no reason to believe that the current leaders of the church were any different. And if that were the case, those current leaders deserved a hearing. They were people whose faithfulness had been tested and approved. And so our author says, in effect, listen to them. Listen to these people. Be open to them. Allow yourselves to be persuaded by their convictions. 
Now, in church leadership, authority does not accrue around titles and positions, but around a personal history of faithfully following Jesus. A Christian leader must himself be led. Now, if we have such leaders, all is well and good. But what if we don't? What if we mistrust our leaders and doubt their good intentions? What if we don't believe our leaders are themselves led by God? What if we're averse to our leader's persuasion? If that's the case, either we're at the wrong church or our leaders are. And one or the other must go. But if we do believe that our leaders are themselves being led by the Lord, it's incumbent upon us to give them the benefit of the doubt. Now, the word translated as submit in verse 17 has to do with yielding to this other person's desire. At least one scholar differentiates between these two words, obey and submit, this way. He says, the obedience here is based on persuasion. You obey because your leaders have convinced you of the legitimacy of their viewpoint, but you submit because you, not because you've been persuaded, but simply because your leaders are your leaders. Do what they say. doesn't matter whether you agree or not. <clears throat> well, being a church leader myself, it would be easy for me to agree with that way of thinking. But I'm not quite sure it captures our author's intent. We yield to leaders not because their authority forces us to do so, but because God is both their authority and ours. On some issues, we can yield even though we're not persuaded. And we should do so for the sake of unity and peace. But if yielding to a person, even a leader, leaves us unyielding to God, then we ought never yield. Now, our author not only tells us to yield to leaders on those issues where yielding is appropriate, he tells us why. The NIV leaves untranslated the word for, but in Greek, the sentence reads like this, and yield to their authority for they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Notice the word translated, they keep watch. It literally means they stay awake. Church leaders spend sleepless nights watching over the souls. That's the way the Greek reads. Watching over the souls that are entrusted to them. St. Paul wrote about this from personal experience. I've labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Now the important thing here is that these leaders watch over us. They spend those sleepless nights because they are those who must give an account. Now, the text doesn't make it clear whether they're accounting for their own actions or the actions of those they lead. Probably both are in view. I don't think most of us with leadership responsibilities in the church are sufficiently aware of this reality. We will answer to God. We'll give an accounting to him concerning our stewardship of his beloved church. This is taught with utmost seriousness in Scripture by Jesus himself, by Peter, and by Paul. Christian leaders will answer for how they've discharged their trust. They're not just in authority. Every Christian leader is under authority. Our author urges church members to be persuaded by their leaders and yield to them. Not because they're always right, but because they're responsible. 
those leaders will answer to God for the way they have led. In issues where a leader acts in ways that are contrary to God's word, we shouldn't yield. But in other issues, we should. And there are many such issues in church life. How many services to hold? Whether or not to hire staff? What kind of building to construct? And on and on. Organ or keyboard, guitar or piano, hymns or choruses, Sunday evening services or small groups, congregation-led, elder-led, The list goes on ad infinitum. In such issues, we should yield to church leaders whenever possible. They'll give account to God for their leadership. We'll give account for our followership. So here we have the what. Obey your leaders and submit to them. We have the why. Because they're the ones who are responsible to God for their leadership of the church. And now we have the how in such ways that will make their work a joy, so that their work will be a joy, not a burden. Karen and I consider ourselves to have been privileged to serve God here for so many years. You've made my work a joy most of the time. (laughs) But frankly, I know many pastors who can't say that. I once interviewed a group of pastors for a newspaper column. Having raised three boys in a parsonage, I was particularly interested to hear how these pastors, from these pastors, especially the ones who had grown up as preacher's kids, to a man, each of those pastors told me that they had gone through a period of rebellion against God and left the church during either their late teen years or their early adult years. And Each one said it was because of the horrible ways they had seen a church treat their dad. All three of our sons are actively following the Lord Jesus. That says a lot about them. To a lesser degree, it says something about Karen and me, but I want you to realize it also says something about you. Your love and care for our family helped them stay the course. The way some churches treat their pastors would shock our author. And it angers our God. But it also destroys our churches. If a church leader finds his work a burden, in the original language in verse 17, is something like that they may do their work with joy and not with groaning. If a church leader finds his work a burden at which he groans, the church will pay the price. Always, always. When a church leader enjoys his work, the church almost always flourishes. When he groans and complains about his work, the church almost always decays. Now, in verses 18 and 19, our author asks the church to pray for him. It's, by the way, it's because of these two verses and verse 23 that people ever came to believe that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter. Paul uses language similar to that in verse 19 when he writes to Philemon. And of course he mentions the mention of Timothy in verse 23 couldn't help but make people think of Paul. But don't miss the fact that our author is requesting prayer for his personal needs. 
Over the years, people have often said to me that they don't pray for themselves. Well, I don't pray for myself. And I've had people say to me, no, don't pray for me. I don't need prayer, but my, pray for my relative. Pray for my friend. That sounds spiritual. What happens to me? That, that's not important. Just pray for other people, not me. But something is wrong when we are more spiritual than the writers of the Bible. Our author says, pray for me. I need it. I need God's help in my life. Paul implores the Romans, join me in my struggle by praying for me. He also says to the Ephesians and to the Colossians, pray for me. And twice he says to the Thessalonians, pray for us. Well, I'm with the author of Hebrews and with Paul. Pray for me. Man, I need it. And you shouldn't be slow to ask prayers for yourself either. It's one of the main ways that we can care for each other. Prayer increases sympathy, understanding, affection, commitment, and it's something that God commands us to do for each other. Now to verses 20 and 21. Now, unlike other New Testament letters, Hebrews does not begin with an introduction. If you go through any of Paul's letters, it's I, Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. James introduces himself. Peter introduces himself. But we don't have an introduction in Hebrews, which is one of the reasons the debate about authorship's been going on since the time of the church fathers. But like most New Testament letters, this one ends with a benediction. And the benediction in verses 20 and 21 is one of the richest ones in the New Testament. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what's pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Notice, first of all, that God is referred to as the God of peace, which is probably a way of saying he is the God who gives peace. He's not the God of commotion, the God of agitation, the God of bustle. As the 20th century Quaker Thomas Kelly put it, in his book, A Testament of Devotion, I find he never guides into an intolerable scramble of panting feverishness. Unbelief and pride may lead us into such a scramble. The God of peace will not. If that's where you find yourself right now, you probably got there without God's help. But you will need his help to get out. And you'll have it. Next, notice that it is in, through, I guess the NIV has, the Greek word is N. It's through, the Greek word N could be translated through, by, with, the blood of the eternal covenant that God brought Jesus back from the dead. That is hard to understand. What role does the blood shed in the establishment of the covenant play in the resurrection of the covenant maker? Here, and here only in all of the Bible, is a covenant ever described as eternal. So is this the same covenant that's referred elsewhere to elsewhere as the new covenant? Or is it something different? Is the eternal covenant some kind of covenant that exists within the Trinity itself? Scholars have gone over this and debated it and never come to a satisfactory answer. Now, I think it most likely that the covenant our author describes here is the one called the new covenant elsewhere. 
covenant between God and us made through Jesus. If that's the so, so, then the point seems to be that by bringing Jesus back from the dead, God has given evidence that he has accepted his sacrifice and that the covenant between God and man has been ratified and stands forever. Whichever is the case, the word the NIV translates as brought back is an interesting one. It's comprised of a prefix that means up and a root that means to lead, a common word ago in Greek. Either uh, earlier in this letter, Jesus is called the author of the faith. Do you remember that? He's the author of the faith. That word is comprised of the prefix ark or arch, meaning first, and the same root we have here for leader. Jesus is the arch leader of the faith. Elsewhere in the letter, he's called the arch leader of salvation. But in this passage, it's Jesus who's being led by the God of peace up and out of death. And you can be sure that those who follow the arch leader will follow him right out of their own deaths as well. Our text calls him the great shepherd of the sheep. His sheep will follow him right into death if need be. And they will follow him out of death without fail. So the pertinent question is, am I one of his sheep? If you don't know how to answer that question, please talk to me or to one of our prayer helpers before you leave this morning. You need to be able to answer that question. This passage tells us two things about God. First, he equips his people with everything good for doing his will. That's what he's like. He's not a boss that gives you a job and nothing with which to do the job. Now, let's say that it's his will. He gives you everything you need, every good thing for for doing his will. Let's say it's his will for you to serve in some remote Alaskan village, like our friends Brad and Julie Olson, where it's dark for months on end and the temperature goes for weeks at a time without breaking the 20 below zero mark. You say, man, I don't have what it takes to do something like that. But if it's God's will for you, he will equip you. He'll give you what it takes. Let's say it's God's will for you to grant forgiveness to someone who has deeply and lastingly harmed you. You say, I can't do that. I've had people look me in the face and say, I can't do that. I will never do that. But if it's God's will, and it is, you can do that. He will equip you with everything good for doing his will. Perhaps his will for you, you know what it is, but it seems to threaten your financial security. You don't know how you can do what he wants. It seems wiser and more secure to just keep doing what you've been doing. But there is no security outside the will of God. He will equip you with finances, with emotional strength, with skills, and whatever other good thing you need to do his will. The question is not whether God will provide. He will. The question is whether you'll trust him. He equips his people with everything they need to do his will. Now, there's something else here. 
our author tells us about God. He not only works in our circumstances to provide what we need, he works in us to create what he wants. May he work in us what is pleasing to him. This verse is reminiscent of Paul's statement that it is God who is at work in you. Sometimes we get the idea, and church leaders get this idea all the time, that the spiritual formation of the church corporately or of Christians individually rests entirely on us. It's all, it's all my job for myself, or it's all the leader's job for the church. It's not. God is the artist. We're the art. He's the maker. We're the maid. He's the initiator. We are the responders. He always comes first. Now, that doesn't mean we have no responsibility in the process. We're responsible precisely because we are response-able. And we are response-able because God has already acted and is acting. He always comes first. We always follow. It's because God's the one at work in you that Paul can say, work out your own salvation. If he wasn't already working in us, there'd be nothing for us to work out. But he is working in us, and there's plenty for us to work out. For all of us, for you. When Robbie Zacharias was in India, he watched a father and son team who were known for making the best wedding saris in the world. Wedding sari is an extravagant garment. It's about six yards long, and each one is a work of art. They're woven with silver and gold threads and fantastically rich colors. Well, he watched as this father, surrounded by spools of thread, And sitting on a platform that was two or three feet above his son would nod to his son, gather threads in his fingers, and then nod again. And with each nod, the son would move the shuttle from one side to the other and then back again. The two of them would do this for hundreds of hours on each sari. And as they worked, a pattern, a thing of beauty, would gradually emerge. The father had in mind from the beginning the design he intended. And he knew just what threads to add and when to add them. The son's job was to pay attention to the father and respond to his motions. If the father had not had a design in mind or didn't provide the materials that were needed, the son's response wouldn't have mattered at all. But as it was, it mattered enormously. The project wouldn't be done without him. And so with us, the role we play in the development of Christ-likeness is both the role we play is indispensable and entirely dependent on God. And it is only, verse 21, possible because of Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. He is everything to us. Our high priest, just in this letter, our high priest the arch leader of our salvation, the arch leader of the faith, the radiance of the Father, the exact representation of his being, the faithful son, the perfect sacrifice, the covenant ratifier, the death destroyer. That's our master, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now I want to close this message out in this series from the letter to the Hebrews, and I want to get a little personal as I do it. I titled this message, Make My Day, and based that on verse 17, where the church members are told to to obey their leaders and and submit to them so that their work will be a joy. I want to tell you how to make my work and the work of the church leaders here a joy. 
Let me first say this. I'm never going to tell you blindly to follow my lead. Never have, never will. I will never ask you to take everything I say as gospel truth. In fact, I would prefer for you to take what I say in the same way the Bereans took what the Apostle Paul said to them. According to Acts chapter 17, they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. That's what I want you to do for me. I'm not going to ask you to raise my pay or for more vacation time. Never have, don't intend to now. That's not how you can make my day. I am going to ask you, this is how you can make my work and the work of our leaders a joy, to intentionally, seriously, from this day forward, seek God, listen to his voice, and do what he tells you. And I believe that if you will seek him and listen to his voice, he will speak to you. My joy is to be like the conductor of an orchestra. I don't want to be the composer. Just the conductor. You know, a conductor doesn't stand between the orchestra and the composer as some kind of middleman. He brings the orchestra and the composer together by helping the orchestra understand what the composer wants from them and when he wants it and how they can respond in appropriate ways at appropriate times. That's what I want for you. I want you to hear the composer for yourself. I want you to feel the power and the beauty of his life pulsing through you as you trust him and obey him. So go ahead and make my day. Tell the Lord, Lord, I believe in you. I trust you. Ask him to train you to recognize his movements, to respond to his directions, to grace you to obey his desires. Tell him I'll be your person. And you'll make my day. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this study, for how we even ended up doing it, and for all the blessing it's been to me personally. But it's a blessing because who you are personally, and who you are always and ever. Lord, to you be glory, now and forevermore. And may that glory come in part through those of us in this room right now, and through lives that are rich and beautiful and sweet and powerful and courageous. Lives that look just like your sons. We ask this in his holy name. Amen.